<laughs> Welcome to Family Sunday. I feel like I should just go, hey, kids, you know. Um, I'm not going to do that. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We are really thankful that the kids are in here. As Charles mentioned, we do this three times a year. And it's not just for their good of transitioning them when they get to of age, but it's actually for our good too. It's good for us to see all ages of kids and adults in this room together worshiping God, learning what it means to sit under his teaching, under his word, take communion together, pray together. So uh, it's a blessing for me. I know as a pastor, I love your kids. I love to get to hang out with your kids. They're so much fun. So it's a blessing for us. I know it's a little chaotic and crazy. Uh, we're not judging you as parents. If your kids are wiggly, some of you have kids that sit and just color and are quiet. And some are all over the place. We had one that was all over the place. And so no judgment, judgment-free zone in here of your parenting. So uh, we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. Let me lay out what we're going to do uh, because it is a little different than what we normally do on a Sunday. Um, I'm going to preach through the text, John 18, uh, verses 1 through 27. This is all the redemptions across uh, the state of Arizona are going through this text this morning, and we will do as well, but I will do it in about 20 minutes. And so I'm going to take about 20 minutes to kind of walk through the text collectively, make some observations of what we see here in the Gospel of John. And then Summer, who's our children's director, is going to come up, and she's going to read a story that deals with Jesus and Peter, which is what we're going to see in the text this morning. We're going to invite all the little kids to come up and sit right here. She's going to sit here and read a story about that. And then Jim, who's one of our pastors and elders, is going to come up, and he's going to tie the sermon and the story and our response all together in a nice bow, because he can do that, because he's Jim. So that's the plan for us today, just to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going. And kids, I do have one question that has been burning in my mind the last several weeks, and come talk to me after. Don't shout it out right now, but come give me an answer. Who is Bruno? And why don't we talk about him? I still don't understand. I have not seen the movie, but if somebody can come and tell me, and now that song is stuck in your head, if you know it at all, you're welcome. Okay, now to focus back on what we're here for. Um, good directors of good movies are very intentional how they lay out a film. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but M. Night Shyamalan's first film in 1999 was called The Sixth Sense. I don't recommend you watching it, kids, with your parents. Um, it is a psychological thriller. But in that movie, there is a scene at the very end that just blows your mind if you haven't seen it, and then you have to watch it again. Well, if you're anything like me, scenes in movies can be really, really encouraging. I'm like, man, this is bigger than I even thought. I thought I was watching something, and now I'm watching something totally different. Well, it goes deeper than just that scene, if you're familiar with the movie, because if you watch the movie back again, the movie is set in Philadelphia. If you're unaware of it, it's about this child psychologist, Bruce Willis, and he has this little kid, and he's helping him work through his issues. And the movie, the coloring in the movie is pretty muted except there is a color that sticks out like a, a sore thumb in the movie. It's the color red. There are these pops of red that come up all over the movie, and if you're just watching the movie, unless you're like Troy Kinney who teaches film, you probably don't recognize it at all. You're probably just like, this is, this is just a movie. But when you do a little research and you just Google the sixth sense and the color red, you see that it is intentionally placed throughout the film. And then when you go back and you watch the film, you're like, I can't believe I didn't see this. This is incredible because it's sending a message subtly throughout the course of the film. And really what the color red is doing is that it symbolizes anything in the real world that's been tainted from 
the other world, or as M. Night Shyamalan, who's the director, says, it's to imply a really explosive emotional moment and situation throughout the film. And I feel like just like a good director, the Bible does this often. Sometimes we're reading it at face value, and we don't even understand what is going on in the text, and then we get into it a little deeper, and somebody exposes some piece to us, and we can never read it the same again. And what we see John doing in his gospel, he weaves through this story of Jesus in such a beautiful way, and as we look at this passage, we're going to point out a couple things that I hope we'll see it deeper, we'll see it richer, we'll see God is trying to do something here that we may have missed before. So let's read the story together collectively. If you have a Bible, you can look at it. If, if you don't have a Bible, just follow along on the screen. We're going to start in John chapter 18, verse 1. We're just coming out of John chapter 17, where the whole chapter we see Jesus praying to his Father, and now he is moving into what he knows is ultimately going to be his death. And really, the scene sets in three different areas. There's an opening scene, what we just read, verses 1 through 11. And then what John does is he bounces back and forth between Jesus getting in front of the high priest, the Jewish leaders, and getting interrogated. But he doesn't just say, hey, here's Jesus and Caiaphas, and here's how it goes. He bounces back between that scene and a scene with Peter, one of his disciples, getting interrogated. And he does it intentionally back and forth. And I think there's some things that we're going to be able to see here collectively. So John chapter 18, verse 1. Follow along with me if you would. It says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, we don't talk about Judas, okay, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Again, the scene is set. Jesus is going to this garden with his followers. He knows what's about to happen. He knows Jesus has left. We saw that earlier in John 13 and 14. And we know they are coming for him. So Jesus is moving there intentionally to pray and to be with his followers. As this mob comes, Judas leading. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom do you seek? Well, let's stop there for just a second because I think John is doing something very intentional with this questioning and with this language that sometimes we might miss. Because this language, whom do you seek? You know, the first time we see Jesus in the gospel of John, he's bringing his disciples. In John chapter 1, verse 38, and you know what he asked them? What do you seek? Whom do you seek? And then in a couple chapters later, in John chapter 20, when Jesus raises from the dead and Mary is going to the gravesite and she's distraught and she's so sad, but she's going, he's not here. And she's looking around at what is a garden and she thinks the gardener, she goes, do you know where Jesus is? She doesn't recognize him because she's so distraught. And do you know what he says to her? Who do you seek? This idea of seeking Jesus and seeking God is woven through the entire gospel of John. And I think John is using very, very intentional language in this moment, asking, who do you seek? Some people in the gospel of John are seeking Jesus to kill him. John chapter 7 says that. The religious leaders, they don't like Jesus because they're taking away their control, his, the, the powers and the control of religious leaders. And so they are seeking to kill him, just like in this moment, they're seeking to arrest and kill Jesus. Some people 
In John chapter 6, Jesus does this miracle, and he feeds this whole crowd, all these people. And they're like, man, this is pretty amazing. We want to continue to follow Jesus. And then in John chapter 6, he says, why are you seeking me? You're not really seeking me. You're seeking to get fed. You don't really want me. You want what I can give you. And some of us seek Jesus for that very reason. We don't really want Jesus. We just want what Jesus can give us. We want heaven. We don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. And so we're going to seek Jesus. And Jesus is like, are you really seeking me? It's about a relationship with me. Are you seeking me? Or are you just seeking what I can give you? When you're seeking Jesus, who are you really seeking? The way Jesus uses this language in John chapter 5, when he talks about seeking, he talks about how he is seeking to submit that he only does the Father's will. He's not seeking his own will. He's doing the will of the Father. Who are you seeking? This is the question that Jesus asks as the soldiers approach him. Let's pick it up in verse 5. That answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said that I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. There's a note of another loaded phrase in this passage right here, other than who are you seeking, it's I am he. Now, Jesus is using this language very intentionally. I think John puts it in here very intentionally to help us understand, and the readers of th this original document would understand when Jesus is saying, I am he, he's going back to a story in the Bible. Do you know what story he's going back to? It's the story of Exodus. And God sees the suffering of his people in Egypt. They're being oppressed and they're crying out to him. And he said, I'm going to send someone to rescue you, to free you from your slavery. And he meets Moses in the desert through this burning bush that keeps burning and keeps burning. And when God has this conversation with Moses, Moses is going, I don't want to go. I can't go to Pharaoh and challenge him. Like, who am I supposed to say sent me? What does God say? Tell him I am sent you. So Jesus is making a direct claim to who he is divinely, even in this moment. It might seem like he's just answering the question that they are wondering, who is Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. He's actually making a very direct reference to being God. Not only that, but John weaves this I am language throughout the text. There's seven times that Jesus says, I am in this gospel. He also says, I am blank seven times. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When Jesus answers these people that are coming for him and he says, I am, he is saying, I am God. You will not find life anywhere else but me. And it's true. We try to find life in all types of different places throughout our week, thinking that that thing or that person will satisfy our deepest needs, but Jesus is the only one that can do that. Very intentional language that Jesus and John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are using in this text. 
says, I am he. Verse 8, let's pick it up again. Jesus says, I told you that I am he. He says it how many times? Three times in your Bible. That's going to be significant as well. He says three times, I am he. Verse 8, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Verse 9, this was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you gave me, I have not lost one. He's talking back about being the good shepherd and caring for the sheep. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, you love this. Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. You know he wasn't aiming for his ear, right? Like, can you just imagine the scene? Like, these people are coming. The disciples, it tells in the other passages of the gospel, they're asleep. And they wake up to this rumbling of these foot soldiers coming at them. And Peter's probably just waiting. He's going, okay, I just told you, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. I'm your guy. They're trying to come at you? I'm going to pull my sword. I'm going to take care of it. And he does his best in his own power, and he can't even hit the guy's neck. He cuts his ear off. And what does Jesus tell Peter? Verse 11 it says, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? So that's the first scene. Then it moves into this back and forth interrogation that we see starting in verse 12. Let's look at that. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And Caiaphas, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Camera switches. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard, the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also, are you not one of the disciples, the man's disciples, are you? He said, this is Peter, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter, who was also with them, was standing and warming himself. Next scene goes back, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, have I spoken openly to the world? I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I have said to them, that they know what I said. What Jesus is saying is like, listen, if you were interrogating correctly within the law, this would be the process. You would ask witnesses. You wouldn't ask me directly. Why are you doing this? Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Verse 23, Jesus answered him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Then Annas then sent him out, bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. One more camera change. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, Are you also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked him, did I not see you in the garden? Listen, I know you got 
I know you got one of my cousins. Like, you cut his ear off. I was there. I saw it. Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Let me give some brief observations of this text and what we see. And really, this is, I was having a conversation with Luke Simmons, who's one of our pastors at Redemption Gateway, and, and these are really three points that he pointed out in the text, and I was like, Those, this is exactly what it is. The first is really this story and what we just read really shows us three pictures of humanity. Three pictures of humanity. The first is humanity at its worst. We see that in Judas. Judas comes. He's been with Jesus three years. Jesus has done nothing but love him and care for him and guide him. But Judas's heart is dark. And we see humanity at its worst. He comes in the night to betray Jesus. The other gospels tell us he, he walks up and gives him a kiss, a friendly gesture to betray him. We see humanity at its worst. Before we come into a relationship with God, we are dark in our hearts. We do things that are terrible. Now, you might not think they're terrible, but just like these soldiers that come with Judas, they are enemies of God in that moment as they come to arrest Jesus. And so you might not think your thing is that bad because this guy's thing is worse. But you're an enemy of God before you know Jesus. You're separated from him. Your sin is separated from, from, from God, the holy God that loves you and cares for you. This is humanity at its worst. Not only do we see humanity at its worst, but we see humanity at its best. That's actually pictured in Peter. Peter steps up to the plate. Peter doesn't sit back like some of the other disciples. He says, hey, Jesus, if we're in this, I'm going to defend you. And sometimes that's humanity in its own power at its best. Some of us, man, we need to listen to Jesus because we feel like we need to defend Jesus on social media. We need to say certain things about certain things, and nobody else is saying it, and I'm not going to let this happen, so Jesus, let me say this. And Jesus is saying, could you put down your sword? That's not the way. I don't need you to defend me. Do you have loving, kind words on social media? I don't know. I'm not on social media. But you know if you're being loving, if you're being caring, if you're thinking about the other Jesus does not need you to defend him, just like he did not need Peter to defend him either. It's helpful for us to know. We see humanity at its best until it gets to the point of Peter doing what we would all do is self-preservation. At the end, he doesn't know what's happening. He follows kind of Jesus from a distance, and he basically protects himself. And it's key that just as Jesus says, I am three times, what does Peter say? I am not three times. This is the best we have in our own humanity, in our own power. We cannot live the way God has called us to live in our own flesh. It will end up like this every single time. We will be like Peter. Not only do we see humanity at its worst, we see humanity at its best in Peter, but we see humanity at its truest in Jesus. That's the beauty of this story. Jesus is poised, he's courageous, He's righteous. He's sacrificing. Even in verse 9 when he says, listen, if you're seeking me, let these men go. It's kind of like a reverse garden of Eden where Jesus says, I will take the heat. You let them go. Jesus does that all the time 
with us. I love what Paul Miller, who's in charge of See Jesus, says about this passage. He says this. He says, Jesus performs a ballet of love, protecting, defending, touching, healing, rebuking, one move rapidly following another, while all around him we are pretending, running, striking, betraying, and murdering. He is beautiful. He is as beautiful as they are ugly. The soldiers arrest him, binding the hands that just touched Malchus to heal him. The disciples flee into the night, captive to their fears. And isn't that true for you and I? We flee into the night, apart from Jesus, captive to our fears. But we serve a God that loves us, that cares for us, that continues to do this ballet of love even in our lives right now. He's calling us to come back to him, just like he does Peter at the end of the book. Jesus is the truest picture of what it means to be fully human. And you can imagine that? He's just getting interrogated. And that's the beauty of this, this passage in John. We see Peter getting interrogated by somebody of a very lowly position at the time. And we see Jesus getting interrogated by somebody of a very high position. And Jesus is just calm. He's loving. He's caring. Even when he gets physically hit, he does not react other than respond in love and care. And that's the God we get to serve. Well, what happens to Peter? Some of you know the story. Some of you may be not familiar with it. I'm going to have Summer come up, and she's going to share a story called A Friend Who Forgives. So let's listen to her. This is a story called The Friend Who Forgives. It's written by Dan Hewitt and illustrated by Catalina Echeverry. Ready? Okay. A long time ago, there was a man named Peter who was best friends with Jesus. Peter was a fisherman. He was strong and brave, but he often said the wrong thing. Do you ever talk before you think? Well, that's what Peter did again and again and again. Peter loved fish. In fact, one day, he and Jesus had fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast? That's weird. But we will save that part until the end of the story. On the day when Jesus first called Peter to follow him, can you guess what Peter was doing? Fishing. That's right. Peter was fishing. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, Jesus told him. Can you imagine that? Peter fishing for men? Hmm. Jesus explained that just as Peter liked to search for fish, Jesus had come to search for people who needed forgiveness. Peter loved being friends with Jesus. He saw Jesus do lots of amazing things. One time, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus healed her. Another time, Peter was about to drown in the storm, and Jesus saved him. Slowly, Peter realized that Jesus was more than a friend. He was God. He would never let Peter down. But sometimes, Peter let Jesus down. Like the time Jesus explained to his friends that he had to die on the cross, but that he would come back to life to offer forgiveness. All of you will run away, 
You're going to say you're not my friends, Jesus said. Peter spoke right up, right away. He did that a lot. I will never do that, Peter said. But Jesus told him, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will say three times that you are not my friend. I would never do that. Jesus is my best friend, Peter thought. When soldiers came to take Jesus to the cross, Peter pulled out his sword to stop them. Put your sword away, Peter, Jesus said. My father says that this must happen. Jesus let the soldiers take him to a courtyard to stand trial. Peter followed from far away. Aren't you one of Jesus' friends? A young girl asked as she opened a gate for Peter to enter the courtyard. What do you think Peter said? No, I don't know Jesus. It was a cold night, so Peter walked over to a fire where some people were warming themselves. Aren't you one of Jesus' friends? Someone asked Peter. What do you think Peter said? Mm -hmm. No, I don't know Jesus. Then someone else stepped forward and looked closely at Peter. Yes, you are one of Jesus' friends, aren't you? He said. What do you think Peter said? No. Mm -hmm. No, I don't know Jesus. Right then, at that very moment, a rooster crowed. Jesus turned around and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you will say three times that you are not my friend. Peter was so sad. He knew he had failed Jesus again and again and again. He didn't just need to find other people who needed forgiving. He needed forgiving too. Peter felt terrible. He ran out of the courtyard, and he cried and cried and cried. Peter had let his best friend down, and now it was too late because the soldiers had taken Jesus away to be killed. But Peter didn't stay sad because Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later was the first Easter Sunday when Jesus came back to life to offer people forgiveness. But would he forgive Peter for failing so badly? One day, Jesus went looking for Peter. Where do you think Jesus found him? Mm-hmm, that's right. Peter and his friends were fishing. Jesus called to them from the beach. And Peter jumped out of the boat into the water and rushed to the beach to see Jesus. And this is where Jesus and Peter had fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast? That's weird. Peter was so happy to see Jesus alive. But would Jesus forgive him? Peter wasn't sure. Maybe Jesus wouldn't want to talk to him. Maybe Jesus wouldn't want to be friends with him. But yes, Jesus did want to talk to Peter. And yes, Jesus did want to forgive Peter. Wow. And since Peter had said he didn't know Jesus three times, Jesus gave Peter the chance to say three times, I love you, Jesus. 
That's how Peter became a forgiven fisher of men. Peter spent the rest of his life telling people about his best friend, Jesus. He told them that if they put their trust in Jesus, he would forgive them again and again and again. That's because Jesus was Peter's best friend. He forgave him again and again and again. And if you trust in Jesus, he will forgive you too, again and again and again. The end. <laughs>